Listener Production. Hi, I'm Dilrup Jai Singer. My health and wellness journey began when I lost over 30 kilos. Since then, I've learned how focusing on being healthy both physically and mentally can turn your life around and put you in the driver's seat. And it isn't all eating kale and doing 100 burpees either, although we probably will talk about that. I'm lucky enough to be joined by experts as well as a bunch of idiot comedy mates of mine to talk everything from weight loss to waking up refreshed. Um, without the meditation music and wind chimes, please. In this episode, I'm putting the spotlight on mental health and in particular, why men find it so hard to open up and have conversations about their struggles. Naomi Fraunfelder from Healthy Heads in Trucks and Sheds will delve into the industries that are most at risk when it comes to mental health. And I'll be revealing one of my own mindfulness remedies with Dion Healy, who has taken my mindfulness activity and turned it into more than just a hobby. We'll also be chatting to a truckie called Boxy, a man on a mission to improve the mental health of other truckies. But first, AFL legend Wayne Schwoss joins me to talk about his own mental health journey and why it is so important to speak with your mates. Wayne, firstly, thank you so much for taking the time where we know you have a busy schedule because you're literally pulled over to the side to do this chat. So it genuinely means a lot. So thank you for doing that. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. Mate, you've got so many incredible accolades in your AFL career from all Australian to best and fairest. What things around mental health do you know now that you wish you knew back then in those 14 years that you played that would have, you know, even made things much better? So many, so many things. I've actually never been asked that question in 17 years of doing the work that I now do. I guess that's part of the journey. It's also the the journey of self-discovery. There's been a lot of challenges. There's been really difficult, painful, hard periods of my life. But I can look back now and be very thankful that I've gone through that because it was in those periods and those moments that I learn about myself, I learn about my values, I learn about my ability to cope, to find a way to get through challenging experiences, to develop a level of resilience. So there's been enormous positive benefits to the journey. The single greatest thing that I've learned, if I could go back in time when I was first diagnosed with depression in 1993, I chose not to tell people for 12 years very deliberately and consciously every day. If I was in that position today, I would do my best to digest the information, but then I would make a commitment to tell every important person in my life, this is what I'm dealing with. I need you to know. It's important that you do know. And I would like to know that I've got your support while I work through this challenge. I'm really glad you said that because I would guess that we have plenty of listeners right now who are in that same place of feeling uncomfortable to share that. So just so that they feel seen and heard, do you remember what was the things that was going through your head as to what prevented you from telling people? Shame kept me silent for 12 years. It was a paralyzing shame because of fear. And it was the fear of what people would think, say or do if they knew. The risk that came with the fear of people finding out was the risk of losing respect, losing relationships, losing opportunities, and losing my career. I incorrectly assumed during that period that I would lose all of those things. So I wasn't prepared to take the risk. What I've since learnt in the past 26 years is I've lost four relationships. While it's disappointing to lose those relationships, that's a very small price to pay to be healthy and happy. 
One of the other lessons that I've also learned is all of the assumptions that I made, 99.9% of them weren't factually correct. Mm. So for 12 years, I made decisions based on what I thought people would do. And all of those people, except for four, are still in my life and they play really important roles in my life. And my advice to anybody who is in that situation right now is please don't make the decisions that I Mm. made um, because it makes it much harder, takes more time, more effort more commitment for you to do the things you need to do to get healthy and well, do whatever you need or whatever you think you need to do in order to get the support that you need because you deserve it. What was the tipping point? What was your breaking point where you were like, I can't keep this to myself anymore. I need people to be part of this journey. Was there a moment or just a series of events? No, there, there were two pivotal moments. Six years after being diagnosed, I was playing with the Sydney Swans. It's June of 1999, abusing alcohol and drugs. Got a lot of fractured relationships. Clearly things are not well. And I had an epiphany during the middle of a training session. The epiphany was I'm six years on from being diagnosed. I've done nothing to help myself. And I made a decision at that moment. And for the first time in six years, I walked off the training ground, walked into the doctor's rooms, closed the door, locked it, burst out crying and explained the situation for the first time in six years that I was sick, I was unwell and I needed help. Then I spent four and a half years working with a a wonderful lady psychologist in in Sydney, still hadn't told my family or friends. And then I remember coming home in October of 2005 and my ex-wife said to me, how are you? And I said, I'm really tired. She said, what does that mean? I said, I'm I'm tired from the lie. Mm. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I've been lying about what I've lived with for 12 years and I'm just tired. I'm exhausted. I can't keep doing this. And she said to me at that moment, she goes, great, I've been waiting for this day. I go, what does that mean? She said, we're getting the family together and we're going to have an honest conversation. And of all the things I've done in my life, I was, I've never been scared because my dad was going to be involved in that meeting and I've always wanted his acceptance. I've always wanted his love. He was one of the people that I assumed would lose respect for me. I'd lose that relationship. So the mere thought of going into a conversation and being really honest about what I was living with, with my dad, let alone, you know, 20 other family members was petrifying. But I learned a number of valuable lessons that day. My dad didn't walk out. He did find it difficult to comprehend and understand some of the Mm -hmm. things that I've grappled with. Mm -hmm. But my dad has been a loyal supporter of mine my entire life. What my dad has shown me over the last 17 years since I sat down and talked to him and my family is he loves me. He does everything he can to support me. He doesn't always understand it. He doesn't try to always understand it. But what I know categorically is my dad is always in my corner. And that's that's something I denied him for 12 years because of fear. And again, that's my advice to people who may be in a similar situation. People that genuinely care about you, they'll continue to care about you. So why don't we trust ourselves and trust them to give them the opportunity of showing us how they want to respond once we've told them what we tell them. I started seeing a therapist around 2016 when I wanted to quit drinking and I was quite comfortable talking about it in various formats, including a TV show, Usually We Have a Problem. And I was watching that episode back in Sri Lanka with mom and dad 
side note, illegally on YouTube, but anyway, uh, we're watching it <laughs> and I mentioned seeing a therapist and that was the first time mom and dad found out that I see a therapist. You know, you wouldn't think that we had things that we wouldn't share with each other, but mental health was something that was still a barrier and it hit me in that moment. I was like, oh, they don't know. They're going to find out. And somehow I still felt this shame. The very thing that you just mentioned that, oh, they're going to judge. But also I realized what it was, they're going to worry because the conversation around mental health in, in the subcontinent, in Sri Lanka at least, I know isn't very progressive yet. So mom freaked out three years later. So 2019, just before the pandemic, she was in Australia with me and was chatting. I had to go for a session with my psych. And she was like, oh, okay, you know, good luck. And I was like, what's up? Hang on, this is a bit weird or something. Like, I was like, just talk to me. Tell me what you're feeling. She's like, I'm just feeling a little sad that I didn't give you enough of tools to deal with these problems by yourself that you have to get help. And I said, hold on, when I go to the dentist, do you say to yourself, oh, I didn't teach him how to brush his teeth? <laughs> I, she said, no. It's like, why? Well, why are you let the dentist? He's like, oh, no, it's because a professional who has to have a better look. That's exactly what I'm doing with the psychologist. I've got my tools here and I've got a good tool belt in terms of resilience and mental health strength. But there's some fine tuning that needs to get done once in a while that I'm outsourcing to a professional too, because I can't do this on my own. And that, that clicked with her straight away. Yeah, look, I, I appreciate the share. And, you know, I think shame is the most destructive human emotion. I think it's very unfair when people are either shamed or we shame ourselves. I've seen countless therapists. You know, most recently I saw a, a psychologist because my marriage ended in March of 2020 and my, my relationships with my kids changed fundamentally and they weren't in a healthy, positive way. So it wasn't that I was sick or unwell. I was really struggling to find a way to reconnect with my children. So I spent 12 months working with this psychologist so I could start to develop a language and a different frame and lens to look through from my children's perspective that allowed me to reconnect with my kids. And I don't see how a therapist is any different to seeing our GP, our physio, our massage therapist, our bank manager. These are all people that play really important roles in our lives. And we go to these people because we need their professional support. As a parent, I think sometimes when our children go through difficult periods of, of their life, we feel as though we've let them down. No, we haven't. It's just the life journey. You know, there's a tremendous amount of stigma and shame that is still being subjected to and applied to deserving people. And we need to tackle this and do everything we possibly can to ultimately eliminate it. Brene Brown, I think, differentiates shame and guilt. And she's saying, you know, guilt is not a bad thing to have because that's taking accountability for your actions. So guilt is saying, I feel bad that I did this. Shame is saying, I'm a bad person for doing this. Correct. And yep. removing your deeper self away from the action is the first start to help. Because if I think of my boozy days and, and the things that, you know, make my skin crawl, sometimes still in the shower, I'm like, ugh, I just remember like embarrassing myself. And I think if not for those actions being so potently painful today, I wouldn't stay away from the booze. But it drives me to stay sober. Shaming ourselves keeps us a prisoner to the negative experience. And they are difficult to work through, but compassionately looking at those events and forgiving ourselves for the decisions and choices that we've made that have either hurt ourselves or hurt other people is part of the healing process. But without those experiences, 
you wouldn't be the person that you are today mm. and you wouldn't have made the decisions that you've made. So what that reinforces is that you've grown. And there may be periods in our lives where we make choices again and we let ourselves down, but that's part of the learning journey. Mm. There's no such thing as a perfect human being. We're all imperfect. We make mistakes. We do stupid shit. It, it's part of the human experience. And I think it's really important that we do forgive ourselves for decisions that we make I'm a believer that most people are good people, but the majority of people don't have the toolbox available to them that allows them to deal with the trauma that has happened in their life and heal through that process. You're on the forefront of all of this. I'm trying to figure out what I can do or what can people do to get men comfortable with the idea of being vulnerable. Yeah, this is a, I mean, that's a really important big question. The first thing I'd say to that, how do we get men? I would reframe that slightly and say, how do we encourage males? If someone tells me what to do, I won't do it. Right. If, if you give me an opportunity to think about whether or not I want to do that, then that's a different question. Interesting. The way that I believe we can encourage more males is we need to reframe the narrative around masculinity as number one. Mm. We live in a world that sets a, a certain expectation with a lot of males is that when you grow up, you've got to be strong, you've got to be tough, you've got to be resilient, you've got to be hard, you've got to be a man's man, blah, 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 blah. And you're not meant to be weak, you're not meant to be soft, and under no circumstances do you show vulnerability or do you cry because if you do, that's weakness. Mm. That narrative is being regurgitated and handed down from generation to generation like it's a badge of honour. That narrative is killing men, mm. period. It's causing so much pain, so much distress, because we're setting an unrealistic expectation on a particular gender who are emotional human beings. Men are being conditioned to disconnect emotionally because of the expectations of society or other people. But if we don't start to consciously think about what we're saying to ourselves and what we're saying to other people, including our kids, we run the very real, real risk of conditioning our children in the same way we've been conditioned. I grew up in a world that told me I had to be strong, I had to be tough, but I couldn't be vulnerable and I couldn't be weak. The friction with that is that I've always known from a young age that I was an emotional person, but that got conditioned out of me and I'm not blaming anybody because I was a male, because that's what society expects. That's what family and friends told me. And that's what being critical and that's what my industry told me. So that's why I couldn't feel, I couldn't think and I didn't have a language. And I never cried during my football career, but over the last six to seven years, I have consciously chosen to live the life, my life, the way I want to live. Life is so much better when we turn up and we're a fuller version of ourselves because it means we're being true to ourselves, we're being authentic, and we're giving ourselves the best opportunity of enjoying all of the great things that life wants to provide us. And at the end of the day, if people want to judge us negatively because, A, you've stopped drinking alcohol, um, you're seeing a therapist, um, you know, I've, I've, I'm on medication at the moment for anxiety. I see a therapist from time to time. People want to judge us negatively because we make these decisions to be better ourselves. Well, let them judge us. We don't have to take that garbage on. And I think, I think that's an important message. 
I, I lost a friend, the only friend who said to me, oh, you're boring now, now that you don't drink. And I was like, mate, you realize that this is a daily struggle for me. And it's something I worried about that I'm not going to be as interesting or funny, especially on stage, because so many of my jokes were about being a pisshead. And I was like, you know how painful this is. And I don't need another voice in there because I'm doing it enough to myself. It took a while for me to realize that had nothing to do with me. That was all about him because he too had an excessive drinking problem. But while I was around, the spotlight was on me and it minimized his abusive drinking. And so as soon as I was away, he's next in line. So rather than trying to lift himself up to my standard, it was easier for him to bring me down to his. The first thing that I'd say is what your friend did to you was he shamed you for a decision that you made. Now, I'm not being judgmental, but that's the reality of what happened. There's a distinction between fitting in and belonging from my perspective. When we're trying to fit in, we're willing to compromise ourselves to fit in to other people's expectations. Mm. But when we belong, we're giving ourselves permission to be the person that we think we deserve to be. There's a very important Mm. difference from my perspective in regards to those two things. And I certainly tried to fit in for a large part of my life, whereas now the people that are in my life, they belong in my life and I belong in their life. Human beings are so good at giving so much of themselves to so many other people and so many other things. We have this capacity to extend ourselves even when we are exhausted, we're tired, we're stressed. We don't want to let anybody down. And every time I'm with an audience, I'll ask them, who's the most important relationship with we have? And it's with ourselves. Yet very few people are willing to give themselves what they give all of the other important people in their life. And my question is why? Well, I don't, I don't want to be self-indulgent. It's selfish. No, it's not. It's fundamentally important. If you are healthier and happier, if you feel better about yourself, then those people that are important to you get the benefits of that. And that is positive. Wayne Schwartz, I can't thank you enough for speaking so, so candidly about everything. No problems. I take great comfort in the fact that we're having more of these conversations. And I, I really appreciate the fact that, you know, we, we've never met, but here are two males, adult men that can talk candidly and openly and be comfortable in that space. Mm. You know, there was a long period of my life where I didn't think life would ever improve. I didn't think I'd be happy. I didn't think I'd enjoy things that I wanted to enjoy, but anyone who's struggling right now, life can be great again. It can be wonderful. It can be fun. It can be happy. There'll be plenty of bumps in the road, but do whatever you need to do to get the appropriate help that you thoroughly deserve. And if people would like to find out a bit more about Pucker Up and what we do, which is the organization I founded five, six years ago, Pucker Up, P-U-K-A-U-P.com. There's a range of different things available if people would like to learn more about what we do. So thank you. Focusing on your mental health is so important. And sometimes that can be just a case of getting out of your own head. One of the best ways to get out of your own head is finding a relaxing activity or hobby. Trust me, I know. I was in lockdown for over 200 days and I found a hobby that did exactly that. Now, admittedly, it's not the sexiest hobby in the world, but I don't care. I love it. What I do to relax is jigsaw puzzles. Now, you don't have to puzzle to relax, just doing the activity because you enjoy it, because you never really know where that hobby could take you. And my next guest liked her puzzles so much that she is now the president of the Australian Jigsaw Puzzle Association. 
Yeah, I, I was skeptical, but apparently it is a thing. Dion Healy joins me now. Dion, you're the president of the Australian Jigsaw Puzzle Association. Um, is that a real title and organization or just something that you got from mum and dad and you've just hung <laughs> on to? It's real. We are a registered non-profit association and we are officially the Australian branch of the World Jigsaw Puzzle Federation. I got into puzzling, I think like a fair few people during the pandemic, like obviously did as a kid and stuff like that. But then once the pandemic hit and I was locked in a one bedroom apartment in Melbourne, the most locked down city in the world, I was like, well, how do I kill some of this time? Because I can't just keep binging TV shows. And then ironically, I found a way to basically do the puzzle and still binge TV shows. <laughs> I guess, when did you turn pro? When did this become more than just a hobby that you did at home? How old were you? Oh, that's, that's an interesting one because I've been doing them for as long as I can remember. As a child, I I've uh-huh. always enjoyed puzzles. But I think it was when I started getting feedback from other people saying, oh my goodness, have you finished that already? Like, I thought, am I fast? And I thought, I'd I want to know if I am. So yeah. I guess the only way to do it is to race someone. So yeah. then I started investigating where and how I can race someone and found out there were competitions internationally, but nothing in Australia. So I had a trip planned to Spain for something completely different. And I realized there was a competition the week prior in Spain. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've I've got to go. So I thought I'll plan yeah. my holiday earlier. So pause this for a second before we get into what happened in Spain. So in the lead up to it, give us a little bit of a sense of stat, like say 1500 piece puzzle. How long were you able to do it back then? Did you have a sense of it? Oh, a thousand piece puzzle. I was looking at four to six hours. What? (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean four to six hours? uh, Was it like numbered? (laughs) Is that how you were able to do it? Wow. Okay. So a thousand piece in four to six hours and you started going, that is okay. People are saying that's fast. Let me see if it is. What's the response like to your family members when you tell them, Hey, I'm going to fly a bit earlier to do puzzles in Spain. I'm going to ignore the sangria and Basque cheesecake that's on offer just so I can puzzle. Yeah. My family were very supportive, especially when they found out that with it being the first World Jigsaw Puzzle Championships, which I didn't realise that before I got there. Wow. And you walk away with a world ranking and my kids all of a sudden wanted to tell everyone that yeah. their mum puzzles. And what was the first world ranking? I got 79th. Wow. In the world. Yeah. On your first go. <laughs> and it was my very first jigsaw competition ever as well. So I, I was pretty happy with that. All right. So let's let's then just get to the nitty gritty of it. How does the competition run? Does everyone get the same puzzle? Yes. So everyone has an identical puzzle and you don't get to see it beforehand usually. What's your strategy then? Are you allowed to take little boxes? Because I collect all my like old iPad and iPhone boxes just for my puzzling, just so I can put them in different categories. Yeah. People have all sorts of puzzling accessories. Some take like a kitchen spatula. (laughs) (laughs) In case they need to make an (laughs) omelette. It's so that if they've completed a section of the puzzle outside of the border, they can pick it up and yeah. move it inside without it falling apart. Right. Okay. We had a headlamp at <laughs> the last one, like a mining lamp. Oh, right, right. <laughs> like an old-timey doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Before competition, do you have to do like a doping urine test and stuff like that just to make sure you're not? Not yet. What about, have you ever seen where they get to the end and realize they're missing one piece? 
Yes. <laughs> That's happened. Oh my God. Oh, and, I'm having sweats just imagining that moment right now. Yeah. And do you know where the piece was? He turned the lid on its side so he could see the image and he uh-huh. put a piece behind? on top of the lid, like on that narrow edge. He's just balanced a piece on there yeah. and couldn't find it. He'd forgotten he'd put it there. And how long before you eventually <laughs> found it? You- I, I think it was a, a few minutes. Yep, that's a reason to probably flip the table over. (laughs) (laughs) Which we're not encouraging. Obviously, we're not encouraging people lose their mind. But speaking of, though, let's talk a bit of hazard. Because I started doing puzzles, like I said, in lockdown on my couch. And I actually developed a small back injury (laughs) because of the way my table was. And I put that out there on Instagram. And a friend of mine, her dad basically made a puzzle table for me. You know where a conductor would keep their music notes? Like it's sort of on an angle, but it's this big board that's got felt on it, green felt on it. You sit on the couch and you can bring it over you. And because of the felt, it doesn't drop down. It stays up. That's luxury puzzling right there. Absolutely. But then since my girlfriend moved in, apparently it doesn't fit the aesthetic of the apartment. (laughs) But I've got to figure out how to pull that back out again. But have you copped any injuries? Do you have a consciousness about posture when you're puzzling? Yeah, my back hurts. <laughs> you need a, you need like a, you need to get the Aussie government to sponsor you as a, as a you know, for physio yeah, or something because you're representing Australia. A chiropractor can sponsor the association. <laughs> I've just been, I've just realized that I've just nerded out so much with you about puzzling, assuming that everyone else cares about puzzling <laughs> as much as I do. I personally find puzzling an incredible grounding sort of exercise for me and see if this resonates with you. So this is not so much a question as much as me just sort of sharing an insight. I used to be very goal oriented. And while that helped me at times, what I realized happens is as soon as I get to the goal, I am sort of bored. I'm trying to get better at enjoying the process of things. And for me, jigsaw puzzling has been a great reminder that the process is really important and enjoying the process of it. Because once you complete it, it doesn't stay on the table that long. So for me, it's a nice little reminder that to do things just because you love doing it and not because you're looking forward to the finish. Yes. Is that something that resonates with you? 100%. Since I've been organising puzzle competitions, a lot of people think I'm all about just puzzling as fast as I can. And that that's only one side of it. My puzzling always started with just doing them for the pure pleasure of sitting there, taking my time and you know, you get a little kick with each piece that fits in and, mm. yeah, that there is something special about just giving away your time to a jigsaw puzzle and time goes so fast while you're puzzling and I think because you're so present, mm. everything else drifts away and I actually find puzzles are very relaxing for me and slow my mind, like calm my mind down. Mm-hmm. So if there's a lot going on in your world, I, I find puzzles are the best escape and relaxation tool. I I just love them. Is there any particular advice you'd give to a beginner? Start with something small like a 300 piece. Pick an image that resonates with you. Just pick an image you like and sit down and enjoy it. Don't, Don't put any pressure on yourself. You're only puzzling for you. If you're wanting to connect with other puzzlers, feel free to jump on our Facebook page or our website and you'll see all sorts of 
puzzle exchange groups, events where people just get together to socially puzzle, which is really nice as well. So there's a whole community out there for you, or you can just sit at home and plot away on your little puzzle and enjoy the process. And one last question. I've had a controversial opinion once with someone I was dating because I had my puzzle out and she came over and she added a piece and I was like, "You, uh, what are you doing? You've, you've taken away my win because now it's not that I did the puzzle, we did the puzzle and this is not part of the agreement. Is there a chat in the community as to what's acceptable or what's not? If someone's puzzling, you don't mess with yes, it? Yes, there is. There Thank is. you. <laughs> There's a reason why she's an ex-girlfriend. <laughs> Dion, thank you so much for joining me today. It's honestly fired me up. So thanks so much for sharing all your insights. Oh, not a problem. Thank you. Our next guest for this episode is the CEO of Healthy Heads in Trucks and Sheds, an organization that Lynn Fox, the team behind this podcast, works closely with. Feeling isolated on the road is a feeling I know all too well as a traveling stand-up comedian. So I'm very excited to welcome Naomi to the program now. Naomi, you work in Healthy Heads in Trucks and Sheds. Just before we hit record, you gave me a stat that blew me away. Do you mind sharing that with our listeners? Yeah, so the, the road transport, warehousing and logistics sector is ranked 19 out of 19 in Australia for being mentally healthy. So wow. the worst in the country. I joined the industry only 18 months ago and I, when I saw that statistic, I was quite shocked. But then mm. when I stopped and thought about it, as you've just done, there are a number of sort of workplace and individual factors that lead to the sector being ranked where it is. So when you think about things like truck drivers can drive for up to 16 hours a day under advanced fatigue management, meaning that you're sort of away from family routines. When do you get time to exercise, maybe speak to a counsellor or a psychologist? And it also leads to issues like fatigue. There's a high, really high rates of marriage breakdowns. So mm. you've got lots of sort of isolation and disconnection. And then there's exposure to potentially traumatic events while out on the road. Uh-huh. And then for warehousing teams as well and those working in distribution centres, you've got similar issues around contract work, shift work, fatigue, disruption to regular routines and the impact on sleep and all of that as well. Yeah, because I did two weeks in regional WA a month ago, just two weeks of going Karata, Kalgoorlie, Tom Price, Port Headland. I found it was quite challenging because the longest we did was seven hours on the road, but just that was tough for me. And then you go and you're staying in a donga. Mm. So what are some of the things I suppose that people can in, in those industries can do to, I guess, minimise the impact that those uh, those r- lack of routines can have. That's a lot of the work that we do at Healthy Heads, but it's also where, you know, some of the main challenges are. Uh, so we've got things like the Healthy Heads app. So we've developed a phone app, which has got lots of different tools and resources on it. So, for example, breathing exercises. And then we've had one of the St Kilda Football Club players, we've got a partnership with them and he filmed short exercise videos with resistance bands. So we're sort of thinking if you don't have space to exercise, you know, what are small routines and bits and pieces you can do to to be exercising. And a lot of it's around maintaining connection with family and friends when you're away from them. But I think it takes a huge amount of discipline. Like if you're sitting down 16 hours a day driving and then you're still trying to get your eight hours sleep, when are you meant to fit in that sort of exercise? So the it, nature of some of the roles makes it difficult. It, it's so hard. The motel that I was staying in in Tom Price didn't even have Wi-Fi. So even that level of inability to connect with people or your loved ones 
I can't even imagine how that can be something that is a lifestyle rather than just a blip in my, uh, you know, my, my calendar. In terms of bang for buck, what's the least amount of effort for maximum return when it comes to looking after your mental health you have come across? So I think a lot of it is based around balance. So if you think of mental health as part of overall well-being, mm-hmm. I think it's all of those factors around, you know, everyone has mental health and everyone's on a continuum that you'll slide up and down. You can build resilience and there are tools and resources you can use when challenges arise. But I think part of it is keeping your physical health so exercise, even if you can fit in a 20-minute walk in one of your breaks in the sunshine, like keeping sort of everything in check, good sleep, so doing sort of what you can to maximise that rest time, nutrition, checking in with friends and family. It's about trying to keep your overall well-being in check because you can't separate mental health from physical health. Yeah, they're so interconnected and they kind of like feed each other. Yeah, in my personal experience, it's felt like it's just reminding my brain that we're better than we thought we were. So just, it's like, oh, we're walking. Oh, that means things must be okay. We must feel safe. And I think it's that tiny bit of power that you take back an autonomy to go out and make yourself do something that then, you know, you realise actually I am in control of, even though the situation's out of control or Uh feels out of control, there's little things you can do that can then make you feel good about yourself. Like Uh I've been for a walk. I went to yoga, I've eaten healthily today. Like it's it's little things. I think it's just that those people underestimate the power of a little win. I understand you're not obviously a clinician, but what are some of the signs that people tend to dismiss as just fatigue or just feeling a little flat that actually might be potentially the start of a bigger problem down the track? Yeah, I think in my experience and based on, so at Healthy Heads, we've got a partnership with Are You Okay? So mm-hmm. we do an Are You Okay in Trucks and Sheds Day of Action, which we only started this year. And I've worked sort of around the mental health sector in roles I've had in terms of working with sort of Lifeline and Black Dog Institute. I think it's often very subtle changes. I think you spend 80% of your time with people at work. So mm-hmm. more time with people at work than anyone else. So we sort of try to give the message that you're probably best placed to recognise if something's changed in someone's behaviour. And it can be minor. They could look slightly different, be withdrawing from, you know, if they normally want to go out for team lunches and now they don't want to. Like it can be sort of small changes. And that's why we place a lot of emphasis on the Are You Okay ALEC message, which is ask, listen, encourage, action and check in. So if you sort of have someone you work with and you recognise something might be different, I think it's always better to ask than not ask. I think a lot of people are scared to have these conversations because they're not a clinician and they're not an expert, you don't need to be. It's really about showing someone that you care about them, that you might have recognised something is different. L is for listen. So it's just sort of listening without judgment. Encouraging action, which might be, have you felt like this before? What did you do then that might have helped? Or, you know, have you spoken to your GP? And then checking back in. We're trying to create a culture where we're not clinicians, we're not experts, but you only need to be human to be able to check in with someone that you recognise something might be off with. Because I felt like if someone says, are you okay? And then you go, I'm not, then what do you do? Yeah. And so we've got on our website, we've got tailored sort of conversation guides and ways of having these sort of chats with people. A lot of the time, someone just wants to be listened to and feel heard. So mm. it's it's trying to communicate that message that we can support each other and our colleagues. I think 97% of truck drivers are men and the average age is 50. So you're dealing with a cohort that is not used to talking about their feelings. And stigma is a major barrier for us and will continue to be. So I sort of see that as quite a long journey in terms of for the road transport, warehousing and logistics sector to really normalise, you know, talking about mental health and that it's okay not to be okay. Say you are someone who is listening right now 
who is in an industry where it is stigmatized or, you know, you considered soft if you want to talk about mental health. Are there anything that you can, that that person can do to try and minimize that? We're seeing strong leadership on the issue, particularly at the CEO level in the sector. Uh So you've got sort of the CEOs that sit around our board table that are coming out personally and talking about it as well. And that's quite unique. I remember we had a board meeting a couple of weeks ago and one of the directors said that he recently went out to a staff event and only spoke about mental health. And someone came up to him after and said, in the history of this organisation, that's never happened. So when you see that sort of leadership at the top, I think cultures will start to change. But I also think you do find in organisations individuals that are very passionate about these issues and might be willing to sort of help coordinate events and start to to talk about these issues. And I also think it takes people that are willing to speak out about their own personal mental health issues that acts as a catalyst. If you're a truck driver in your 50s and you see a colleague talking about it, it's Mm. very different to seeing someone on TV, like a politician or someone from a mental health organisation. So I think seeing people in their sector Mm. talking about these issues will start to normalise it. It's cultural change, so it will take time. One of my bang for bucks that I find beneficial is a sense of gratitude in the morning because it puts me in a set of a place of realizing I am coming from a place of abundance rather than lack. If you're just taking stock, I look at it as yesterday, today and tomorrow. So I'll look what went well yesterday, who can I reach out to today and what am I excited about for tomorrow? So it gives me a nice little grounding every morning. And that's quite simple. And I do that literally when just brushing my teeth. Have you found anything like that that you do for yourself that you find useful? Definitely gratitude. And I think you start looking for it then. The more you focus on it, Uh like the more then throughout the day, you might see things and be grateful for them. There are days where I'm not feeling it. And even the idea of having to think of something I'm excited about for tomorrow is not quite there. It's there, but I just don't want to latch onto it because I'm so grumpy and angry about what happened to me last night and how dare that person say this to me or whatever it is. And just realizing that you don't have to nail it all the time. You're allowed to have bad days. Bad days doesn't mean a bad life. And just sort of just focusing on what little wins you can get. Naomi, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share all of that with us. Thank you very much for having me, Dilruk. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. At the start of the episode, Wayne spoke openly about depression in men. My next guest is someone who's sadly seen the devastating effects of depression firsthand. He is a driver with Linfox and is doing some fantastic work in the mental health space. His name is Daryl, but he is better known as Boxy. First question, I suppose, is how did the name Boxy come about? Oh, Derek, just just look at look at my head. <laughs> well, our listeners don't have a visual aid, so <laughs> well, it's just a box shape. Is that where they were going with? Yeah, yeah. I've been I've been known to have a bit, bit of a big square head. So many many years ago, I um, was working for a company called uh, Grace Removals, and and it was my first day there. And the guys that were working there said, "God, look at this guy. He's got a head on him like a box." <laughs> and it's just stuck ever, ever since, you know. And that, that was back in, say, oh, God, it must have been uh, 1990 it would have been, I guess. Yeah, wow, 30 years on. Yeah. Boxy, what are some of the challenges that are more unique to the job of being a truck driver? Oh, it's definitely the, the isolation. You're doing hours and hours and hours of driving and, and, and being away. It's appreciation as well. I don't think that the general public really appreciated what the transport industry is doing out there until COVID. You know, people go to Woolworths and Coles and that, and, and they see all these stocks fully stocked up and people just take it for granted. They, they forget that there's a, there's a guy 
or a, a girl that's driving that, that vehicle to get it from point A to point B so you can go and get your food to cook up your, your meal for, for that day. Whilst they're doing that, they're away from their family as well. When you've been driving for so long, you always hope that you don't come across anything bad. Mm. It's probably about four years ago now, and I was just pulling into a, into a truck bay to have a, have a bit of a break, and a lady actually passed me heading south, and she sort of waved to me and I waved to her, and I looked in my mirror and I'd seen her car have a head-on collision. And I actually watched it, watched it happen, and I knew straight away that uh, it was a, a fatality. Mm. And it sort of haunted me for a while because um, besides the car that she impacted with, I would have probably been the last person that... That she waved at and saw. Yeah, that she waved at, you know, and I, I like, like to think that, that my big square head <laughs> was, was yeah. a friendly face that she seen before she passed away. But I ended up blocking the, the highway with, with my road train yeah. Once I could see that the Ambos and, and the police were, were on, on scene there, I had to drive about another 1,000 k's to my point of destination. You just see that image just replays over and over and over in your head the whole time. This is why I really promote going out getting counselling because I mm. ended up going through the road trauma counselling section and they were absolutely fantastic. You don't forget trauma. But you, I guess yeah. you learn to live with it. You know, I feel very humble with the fact that, you know, working for a large corporation company such as Linfox are, are taking it on board to do something about mental health. And um, the avenues out there, people just need to understand that it's okay not to be okay at times. Talk us through some of the work that you have been doing in terms of getting that out there. I guess when my best friend of 38 years took his life, he was a... Um, a detective sergeant with the WA police, and it just floored me. It just yeah. absolutely floored me. He was a very outgoing guy. Everyone loved him. I just couldn't believe that he, he would do that. It would have been six months after that, I had another friend of mine who was a truck driver, and um, this really hit hard, hit home with me, and I knew that um, you know, for, for my healing, I didn't want to lose another friend. Yeah, I knew I had to try and do something. In 2019, we did a journey around Australia. One of my friends, Leo, he had stomach cancer, and we ended up taking three muscle cars around Australia. And a lot of listeners will know these cars. That The Phase 3 GDHO XY Falcon are a legend <laughs> in Australia. They won Bathurst. We took three of them around Australia, and, and my good friend, David Frake, who's, who's in Melbourne there, he asked me to come along on the, on the journey. And, and I said to Dave, well, look, if we're going to do this, then we're going to raise some awareness for mental health and try and raise some funds for, for first responders. Mm. And we we took them all throughout the outback areas of, of New South Wales. We went to Bathurst, all up through Queensland. But whilst doing this this journey, we filmed a documentary as well. We had uh, Mark Kalija, who's a renowned filmmaker in, in Melbourne there, it's called the Phase Three Odyssey, and the main theme of the story is getting off that couch, getting out there, and achieving your your dreams, knowing that you only live once. Yeah, this is why we focus on me- on mental health. You know, like a lot of people that have mental health, that they just lock themselves away and and they and they they don't get the help that they need. They don't go out there and and live their life. So by doing this journey, it was to show that yeah, hey, get off the couch, get out there. And do it. 
So Boxy, specifically around truck driving and your years of experience in that field, which can be quite isolating and, and can be long hours, what have you found has been beneficial for you? I think having that support of your family and friends is, is imperative to doing the, like, the long-distance work as a long-distance truck driver. Mm-hmm. I always make sure that I take away some, some good healthy food. If your body's not healthy, then your, your mind's not going to be healthy as well. So make sure you, you, you eat right. And to make sure that you have a good selection of good music. <laughs> what is your, on your go-to selection of music these days? I have a, a selection of everything. You know, like it all depends on on how you're feeling, how your how your moods are. You know, you, you, I go from like the Foo Fighters to to ACDC, and then I, you know, late at night I might have a little bit of te- techno going, just a you know a bit of doof doof music to right to, to get you through yeah, it, just you know? to pump you up a bit more. Might I recommend Taylor Swift's new album, Midnight? I'm really digging that. (laughs) (laughs) If this episode has taught me anything, it's that asking for help is okay. In fact, it is vital, especially for us dudes. If this episode has raised any concerns for you or if you would like to speak with someone about your own mental health, you can reach Lifeline's 24-hour support line on 13 11 14. It's a service that I'm not ashamed to say that I had to call during the pandemic myself and I found the process very, very helpful. On the next episode of The Driver's Seat, we talk social sport with Craig Foster and cricket legend Brad Hodge stops by for a chat. He said, righto, son, I'll buy you a bacon double cheeseburger deluxe. Some fries and a Coke for every 50 that you get. Pretty much every Saturday. I walked out there, scrounged my way to 50, raised the bat, walked off, and off we go to either McDonald's or Hungry Jack. And my producers are going to give you some alternative options if the usual sports like touch rugby and futsal aren't for you. The top-rated player in the world has just signed a $10 million endorsement deal. That's incredible! Mm. Oh, yeah, big, big money. That's next time on The Driver's Seat.